Well, we are amazed. We're amazed at Jesus, and we're amazed at the things that transpired in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you joined us tonight for this important remembrance of uh, the Friday that has become good. Uh, if this is your first time with us, you may be thinking, this has been a little bit different tonight. This has been pretty somber, and uh, that has been intentional. You'll have to come another time to have a little more of the celebrative side of it, like maybe Sunday morning, uh, Easter. We're going to have a great time. But on Good Friday, we choose to remember the hard things, the harsh things, the painful things, the price that our Savior paid for our sins and for our redemption. Uh, you've been on a little journey with us tonight, thanks to uh, Pastor James and Marilyn, and through Jerry's song and the, the visual reflections. We've been on a little journey. We've been reviewing and reflecting on Jesus' life, on his ministry, and then upon those last episodes that took place as he went to the cross. We uh, have been amazed. We have been touched. His compassion stirs us. Maybe you've been like me over these last few minutes and you've wiped a few tears. It kind of begs the question, when you get to Thursday evening and Friday's crucifixion, how do the events turn the way that they did? How can Jesus come into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to Hosanna's, the son of David, and then by Thursday and Friday, it's crucify him, crucify him. Well, I'm going to reflect on a few readings with you. And if you have a Bible, uh, you're going to benefit from reading along with me. Starting in Matthew chapter 26. And we'll back up and look at a couple of chapters that lead into that. But when we get into Matthew 26, and Jesus had finished a number of sayings, verse 1. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So none of this caught Jesus by surprise, right? He knew it was coming. Uh, it's not a surprise to us in the sense that it had been foretold and prophesied for hundreds of years. And there are many, many prophecies that uh, were hundreds of years prior to the crucifixion of Jesus that were being fulfilled. So... One aspect of how do you go from a Sunday Hosanna to a Friday crucify him is just the sovereignty of God. It was God's plan. God was at work in this kind of way redemptively for us. In fact, the scriptures tell us before the, the foundation of this world, it was the plan of God that would unfold in the ways that we've just been reflecting upon. So that is one whole side of it. But the other side of it is you've got all these free will beings people like you and me who are making choices that fall right in line with the foreknowledge of God. How does that happen? 
Well, in the next verse, verse 3, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So between Sunday and Friday, the religious leaders, chief priests first among them, began to conspire to seize Jesus and to kill him. Well, what happened? Well, I'm going to invite you to take a couple of pages and go back to chapter 24. Because we're going to begin to see a few events that unfold. And what we will discover is not only... Jesus, this tremendous, loving, compassionate, saving Messiah. But he is the provocative man of God. He is not some kind of pacifist, some kind of do-gooder that is like milk toast. But he is the provocative Messiah. So when we lead into chapter 24, Jesus has just finished a very heated exchange with a number of religious leaders. So picking up in the first verse of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It's a very pivotal passage that we just read there, although it may come off a little tame to you. So he just has this heated exchange with religious leaders. He basically says, okay, I'm out of here. Well, for Jesus to say, I'm out of here, is kind of a flashback to some things that the prophet Ezekiel has said hundreds of years prior, that there would come a time when the presence of God would leave the temple. And that's what you're viewing here. It's over as far as Jesus' ongoing attempts to speak into the lives of these hard-hearted leaders. And so as he's leaving, and the disciples are kind of getting the drift. This is not just a walking away from the temple. This is a, I'm out of here. It's over. And something of his presence is being removed. So they began to tug at him and began to point back to these magnificent structures that took nearly 50 years to construct. They weren't even finished with it by the, t- by the day of Jesus. Magnificent structure. And they point back to it. And they're asking questions about it. In verse 2 he says, You see all these? These structures? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, he has just predicted the destruction of this temple, which is unfathomable to a good Jew in Jesus' day. Because it came to symbolize the very presence of God. In fact, some had become idolatrous about it, and it was like God to them, a building. And he says, this place is going to come down. Of course, you may remember later when he's arrested and when the false charges are being hurled at him, Part of what they are saying is a perversion of what he just said here. And so verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately 
And they said to him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? What an interesting question. It uh, uh, reveals to us kind of what's going on in their own mindset. Because they put together two huge historic experiences as if it were one. They said, tell us what will be the sign of your coming. That is to say, when you come with power, when you come with that deliverance, with that uh, cosmic action that's going to change and transform. When will that happen? And when will the close of this age take place and the destruction of this temple? Well, Jesus hears the question, and even though they asked it as if it was one thing, he answers it in two ways because it's two things. And in verse 4, he begins to say to them, well, I want you to see that no one leads you astray. Here's how it's going to happen before the temple is destroyed, as I just said. For many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. There's going to be a lot of false prophets. There's going to be a lot of false messiahs. And then there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and nations going to rise against nation. And there's going to be famines and earthquakes. There's going to be all kinds of natural disasters that take place. And then they will deliver you, followers, disciples, up for tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by nations for my name's sake. So he goes on to describe this pretty horrific picture of what's going to lead up to the destruction of the temple. And when you get to verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. He is saying that the time is going to come that was like what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The abomination of desolation referred to a time in their history when an a, a invading ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and, and made an offering unto Zeus, and uh, the place was desecrated. It was an abomination. He said something like that's going to happen again, just as Daniel talked about, that will lead up to the destruction of the temple. Verse 29, he starts talking about immediately after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his uh, elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, what's that talking about? Stay with me. He says, before the temple is destroyed, the Son of Man, which was uh, an ancient apocalyptic way of referring to the Messiah, will be vindicated. And he begins to, again, borrow imagery and language from the book of Daniel hundreds of years prior, talking about how the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds. Now, a lot of the times when we read that, when we think about it, we think about it in very literal kinds of terms. That we'll look up and in the clouds will be this figure of Jesus and others will be able to uh, behold it. 
and it says that an angel will blast a trumpet and so on. But it's all apocalyptic language, which is to say it's highly symbolic with the purpose of trying to reveal something of God or God's plan. And the point is that the day will come that people will be able to see Jesus for who he is. High and exalted. The anointed one of God. Now, this is very provocative to all the religious leaders and and that community of Pharisaism. To them, it sounds like blasphemy. Uh, He goes on to say in verse uh, 32, uh, it's going to be so obvious that God's at work in this way that it'll be like seeing the the leaves on a fig tree begin to, to come forth. And when you see the leaves on a fig tree come forth, you know the spring is about to happen. These signs are going to be that obvious to you. And when that happens, you better run. You better flee. You better get out of Dodge, if you will. Get out of Jerusalem. Get out of town. Because it's going to be a very hard and harsh time. Now, verse 36, he changes. Notice the first couple of words in the verse. But concerning that day and hour. Now he's talking about a different subject. He'd been talking about the fall and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now he's going to talk about his own return and his coming in power and his coming in glory. This first time that we're celebrating on today, that we're recognizing today, was the coming as a suffering servant, as an atoning sacrifice. But this next come, this next time around, it's the conquering king. It's the one who will deliver. And so, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. So they asked him, tell us when these things are going to happen. He tells them about the temple being destroyed, which, by the way, happened in A.D. 70, just a few decades after his crucifixion. And then he begins to tell about his coming. And he says, no one can know about that time. No one can know about that day. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. That's an interesting throwback to another Old Testament image. What happened in the days of Noah? In the days of Noah, God was about to judge sin, rebellion, uh, fallenness, brokenness. And he kept calling for humanity to repent, to change, to turn. And humanity had grown to ignore the Almighty God. And so God set out to judge. And that's, you know, the whole flood story. And he found a righteous guy by the name of Noah. And he put Noah to work on an ark. And you know the whole story about gathering the animals and so on. But here's the point. When judgment came, only Noah and his family were delivered. And so Jesus says, here's what's going to happen when I return. It's going to be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, everybody was going about their regular routines, their their business, their pleasures, their recreation. They weren't paying any attention to God. They weren't paying attention to the things of God. Noah kept uh, carrying out the plan of God with faithfulness. And everybody was taken by surprise when the rains and the floods came. 
And I'd been telling them for hundreds of years, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. He says, just like in the day of Noah, when I get ready to return, people are going to be going about their business. They're not going to be paying any attention to God or the things of God. In fact, they may even be taking a stand against God. And it will catch them unawares and by surprise. And he gives a couple of little scenarios to illustrate that. Here's what will happen when I return. There will be two men out in a field working. One will be taken to me because he's my follower. The other will be left. There will be two women working at the mill. One of them who is a follower of mine will be brought to me. The other will be left behind. That's what's going to happen when I return. It's going to be like the guy who went to bed not thinking anything about the insecurity of his home and a thief came in the night totally unexpectedly and was able to rob him in his sleep. So it will be with my coming. The thief didn't announce he was coming. I'm not going to announce I'm coming. It's going to catch a lot of people by a big surprise. And the word to the wise is that you will be prepared. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? And he begins to unfold another little story. Now, these are in the succeeding days that are leading up to Thursday evening and Friday. He said it was like a man who put a servant over his household and then he went away. And he was away for a while, but the servant was faithful to tend to his master's duties. And when he came back and found the servant faithful, he blessed him and rewarded him. Not like the foolish servant who said, you know what, my master's far away. Who knows when he's going to come back? It's going to be a long time. And he began to just kind of party around and, and, and have, uh, you know, fun and all this kind of stuff. And when the master returned, called him totally unprepared, unaware. And he faced a very harsh outcome because of that, which leads us into chapter 25. Okay, these things are unfolding from the life of Jesus. What would provoke the religious leaders to kill him? Chapter 25 talks about the parable of ten virgins. He said there's going to be a wedding and the bridegroom is going to be coming. And there are ten virgins who have lamps, oil lamps, who are going to be ready to welcome the bridegroom when he comes for the wedding. Only five of them were foolish. And they only brought their lamp. They didn't bring extra oil. They weren't prepared. The other five virgins were, were totally prepared. They not only brought their lamp, they brought their oil. And guess what? The bridegroom slash Jesus was delayed. He didn't come at the hour that everybody thought he would come. And as the evening wore on, the five foolish ones had their oil all burn up. And when they ran out of oil, they said, we have no more oil. And they had to go to town to get more oil for their lamps. And while they were gone, the bridegroom appeared. The five wise virgins who had had the extra oil were able to welcome the bridegroom, were able to go into the wedding party. The door was shut and locked behind them, and others were not allowed to come in. The five foolish ones then showed up after they'd gone to the store and got their extra oil, and the uh, attendant at the door said, I'm sorry, the door is shut. You cannot come in. The groom does not know you. Now, these may sound a little cryptic to you, but these were penetratingly clear to the hearers in Jesus' day. Then he told the, the parable of the talents, a master who 
owns this large operation. And to one of his servants, he gives five pieces of money. To another servant, he gives two pieces of money. And to a third servant, he gives one piece of money. He says, I'm going to go off for a long time. When I come back, I want to see what you've done with what I've entrusted to you. A lot of you know the story. When the master comes back, the guy who had had five pieces of money had doubled it and made it ten. The guy who had two pieces of money had doubled it and made it four. The guy who had one piece of money had hid it and just took it out of hiding to give back to the master without having done a thing with it. And we're told that the master rewarded the first two, which, by the way, was not a retirement and pension plan. But gave them more responsibility. Allow them to have more oversight over the things of the master. But for the one who had hid and done nothing with the, the piece of money that the master had given him, he called wicked, evil, slothful, and said, take him out of here where there is weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. You see the scenarios that that, uh, Jesus is depicting with these stories, with these images. And then when we get to verse 31 of chapter 25, he begins to talk about the final judgment. You know what's going to happen in the final judgment? Jesus told about it before the cross. And here's what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne... And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, on the the last day, on the day of judgment, on the day of accountability, whatever you want to call it, Jesus says, I'm going to come. And when I come, I'm going to come like a shepherd who takes all of this flock. And I'm going to put the sheep over to one side and the goats over to one side. He's going to make a discerning difference on who's redeemed and who's not. Who's saved and who's lost. Who's forgiven, who's condemned. Now, we don't like to talk about these things. Guess what? In Jesus' day, they don't like to talk about it either. This is the stuff that drove nails into his hands. And he said, here's what it's going to look like. For the one who is a sheep, who is a saved, who is redeemed, who is a forgiven person. Here's what it's going to look like. See, I was hungry and you gave me food. And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was naked and you clothed me. And I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to to see me. And the redeemed, the saved, are going to say, when did we do that, Lord? And he says, as much as you did it. To the least of these, my brothers, the way you served other people, you did it unto me. But then to the goats, to the unredeemed, here's what your life looks like. I was hungry and you never fed me. I was thirsty, you never gave me a drink. I was naked, you never clothed me. You did not serve the kinds of needs of those around you. Now, let me give you one other little footnote there. Because a lot of the times we just kind of run over that passage and and, and say, well, Jesus is really making a case for us to care about the needy. Not just the needy. Specific group of needy. 
the least of these my brothers, which is in the idiom meaning my little brothers, my little brothers and my little sisters. He's talking about believers. He's talking about the church. As much as you do these things unto my disciples, you show yourself to be my follower and in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not to say we don't care about the needs of those who are outside of Christ. There's a lot of Bible passages that talk about that. But in this text, he's talking about the needy that are a part of his church. And that's an evidence, that's an indicator that you're my child and that you're in. Now, I ask you the question, what in the world happened between Sunday and Friday? How do you go from Hosanna to crucify him? And I've just given you a quick sampling of what took place from Tuesday to Thursday. Jesus kept going into the public places and opening his mouth and provoking people. With historic and Old Testament kinds of images and stories and pictures that they readily got. Maybe some of it went by you and went, well, you know, if you say it's provocative, whatever. It was blowing them away. So much so that it was like the guy that goes to an airport and he's walking down the concourse and he begins to hear that familiar beep, 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 beep sound. And he kind of looks up and he begins to see this amber flashing light. You know what that is. It's that golf cart kind of thing that's carrying people from one end of the concourse to another that can't particularly walk all that distance. When that happens, what happens to you? You get out of the way. You no longer walk down the middle of the concourse. You have to go to one side or the other because the beep, beep, amber flash is coming. And this is what was happening with Jesus in that last week. He was making people choose. Are you with me or are you against me? Do you get it or do you reject it? And obviously, those that began to cry out, crucify him, rejected it and said no. And those who were broken hearted and grieving and crying at the foot of the cross tending to his body to the tomb, got it. And later lived to see what looked like an awful, horrific Friday become good Friday. The time when Jesus paid the price and sins were atoned. Forgiveness was real. And eternal life was given. Where are you with that? Now, let me be very careful. I'm not asking you, are you religious? Because a lot of the people in the day of Jesus' time were religious. I'm not asking you if you accept that Judeo-Christian kind of ethic and that kind of morality and you try to be a very good person. I'm asking you, do you get it? That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the one who reigns today and forever supreme. That Jesus is the one who holds life and salvation. That Jesus is the one who will 
judge and condemn everyone that did not bow the knee and confess with the tongue that he is Lord. I'm asking, has there been a time in your life where you took a white flag and you waved surrender? It's not my will. It's not my way. It's not my life. It's not my great wisdom and my plans. It's you, Lord. And I surrender Everything that I am, everything that I am not yet, everything that I will be, I surrender that to you. Because, friends, that's the invitation on this Good Friday that Jesus in His grace and mercy and compassion is extending to us tonight. Will you believe That He's Christ. That He's the Lord. That He deserves and demands your ultimate life. And will you do it? Will you give Him that place and that preeminence in you? He was very clear, friends. There's only a window of time when when you can make that kind of decision. Because as in the days of Noah... People are going to be going about their business and they're going to be, you know, without margin and doing too much stuff. And they're not going to be paying attention. And boom, he will return. And at that point, there's no more decisions to be made. So everything Jesus was trying to say before the cross was this. The word to the wise is you will be prepared. You will believe who I am. You will surrender. You will give your heart and your life and your allegiance to me. You will follow me with every fiber in your being for all the days that I give you on this planet. So, tonight, we're going to invite you to take that step. And we're going to do so with the wonderful and the glorious ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. Now in just a moment, our servers are going to be coming forward and they're going to be stationed on one side or the other. And they will have the bread and they will have the cup. And I'm going to invite you to come and to receive the elements that we have as a part of our communing with Jesus. But here's what's necessary for that, friends. Because it's not a ritual It's not just a religious practice. It is a public statement that says, I have surrendered to Jesus. He is my Lord, not just not just my Savior, but he is my Lord. And I follow him with a whole heart and with full allegiance. And I follow none other, including myself. And so at that moment, when I invite you, I'm going to invite you to come down this center aisle. I'm going to invite you to declare your surrender with the internationally recognized sign of that, the white flag. And after you have taken a flag of surrender, to go to one side or the other and receive the Lord's Supper as a moment to affirm and to bless and to continue to consecrate.
yourself to Him. You go, I'm not, I don't know that I'm ready for that step. That's okay. God knew you would be here tonight. And He knew what we'd be talking about tonight. And you, you can have some opportunity to think about that, to talk about that with someone else, to pray about that. And so while this is happening with a few others that they're coming forward, you can just stay where you are. They're going to be returning to their seat in just a moment. But if you're ready to take that step tonight, or if you've taken that step before and you're like, okay, I'm just reaffirming, he's my king. Then in a moment I'll invite you to come, take up the flag, and then go and receive the Lord's Supper. Let, it, let me remind us that it was on the night in which our Lord was betrayed that he took bread He blessed it. He broke it. He began to give it to his disciples. And he said to them, this is my body for you. And then he took the cup. And he held it up and he said, this is my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it. Drink. Remember me. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then after that, we're going to invite you to come. And if you feel so impressed, you'll just come down the center aisle, take up your flag of surrender, go receive the Lord's Supper, and then you can go down the side aisles and return to your seat uh, while Jerry leads us in a meditative peace. Let me pray for you. So, Father, we understand a little bit more about what happened between Sunday and Friday. It's the real deal. It's life and death. And tonight, there's a friend in the house that's weighing that balance. And I pray that your spirit would bring clarity as well as conviction. And I pray that all over this house, there would be a yes, you are Lord. Yes, I surrender. Yes, I will follow you with a full heart and full of allegiance. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.